few years ago, I did a funeral for a gentleman um, who had been sick for some time. He'd been getting treatment, and the treatment was beginning to fail. He was nearing the end of his life, and so they called me. They didn't have a pastor. They called me, and I went in, and I, I talked to him about Jesus and gave some pastoral end-of-life care that you would expect me to give. And then he passed away. His son came home for the funeral, naturally. And his son was um, a guy who worked in IT. He was a computer guy. It wasn't like he worked in Silicon Valley or for Microsoft or even a defense department or something like that. He he worked on computer networking systems at at a college campus, I believe. So Drew was similar to your position, um, but it was in another area of the country. And uh, as we were talking there together, he said something like this. He said, you know, if only my dad would have lived a few more years, then he might have been able to live forever. He said, uh, I believe that technology is going to cure all our diseases in my lifetime. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive, right? I don't think I believe that. But he believed that. When he said that, I realized I know where he looks for his answers to technology, to science, to that sort of thing. I know another person who looks a different place for her answers. She's a spiritist. Now, when I say that, I mean she is a medium, and she believes that she can talk to the dead. When you look at her Facebook, I hadn't seen her in years. In fact, I've only had one or two brief conversations with her. But when you look at her Facebook, you can see that she has no time for God, the God who made us, the God who sent his son to redeem us, not interested in him at all, doesn't even like him, but she does talk to the dead. You know where she looks for answers? To the dead. And I think of the words of Isaiah, where Isaiah says in chapter 8, verse 19, why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living when you can talk to God? But she looks for answers among the dead. Now, as ridiculous as those two things might seem to you and me, looking to technology for our answers or looking to the dead for our answers, I have another friend who's even more ridiculous. He actually looks to politics for the answers. (laughs) And he feels like if he can just get the right people into Washington and get this all set up, then then Washington's going to solve all our problems. Look, if you don't learn anything else from the media, you've got to learn that salvation will never come out of our nation's capital. It just can't. That's not where the answers are. But people look there for answers. Where do you look for answers? That's what we've been talking about, that really the place you look for answers reveals a lot about who you are and about where you're going. And that's why we're doing this series. We've been talking about looking to God for answers. And we need to do that because he is uh, our father and he's a good father. We've talked about looking to Jesus for answers and how he's our savior and friend. You can trust him, look to him for answers. We talked about looking to the spirit of God for answers, that he is the counselor who helps us, helps us remember things, gives us wisdom. We talked about looking to the Bible for answers, that it's not just a playbook. It is living and active and speaks to us. And we talk to looking in the mirror for answers and seeing who you are and what is it about you that needs to be addressed in order for you to move forward in the path that God has for you. Today, I want to ask you to look to the cross for answers. And I have a passage of scripture. It's only three verses we're going to read. It's in Colossians uh, in a pew Bible. You'd find us on page 1166. It would be worth opening to because we're going to look at it again and again this morning. Colossians chapter two, starting at verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
he forgave all your sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, now catch this phrase, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Something amazing happened when Jesus died on the cross. Something phenomenal, something that we never would have expected, something that changes not just everything about us, but everything about history, everything about humankind. Our statement of faith speaks about that when it talks about the issue of salvation. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we say that salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. Those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become children of God. So you see these things when you look to the cross. Let's think about some things you might see when you look at the cross or things you should see. At the cross, you should see your salvation. When I was a little boy, I can remember I I used to have theological conversations with my parents. My sister and older brothers were substantially older than I. And so by the time I was seven or eight years old, my closest brother was 19 or so, and, and maybe not quite that old, but he was old enough that he didn't ride around with us. And my parents and I were kind of the three musketeers. And I can remember those are some of those rides were some of the best rides I, I had because you got to talk about things that you want to talk about. I can remember I said one time, how come some people have crosses that have Jesus on them and some people have crosses that don't have Jesus on them? And there's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of answers you might give to that. I love the reply that my mom gave. My mom said this, some people like to emphasize Jesus' death. Some people like to emphasize Jesus' triumph over death. I like the cross without Jesus, she said, because it reminds me that it is finished. It reminds me that death doesn't win. It reminds me that he has risen It reminds me that he has ascended. It reminds me that he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me. Now, it's not that one is right and one is wrong, but it shows you how looking to the cross communicates something to you, shows you something, and helps you understand something. For my mom, when she looked to the cross, she saw her salvation. When you look to the cross, you see that Jesus saves you from what you deserve, namely death. And that's called mercy when we think of that. Mercy happens when you deserve something bad, but you don't get it. Mercy happens when you have punishment that is due you, and that punishment never comes due. Mercy is being left off the hook for something you were rightly on the hook for. When my first son was born, my first child was born, I should say, my son Tim, I was really bad at record keeping, really bad at at reading insurance policies, really bad at filling out paperwork and sending it in. And back in those days, you had to write down all the things that you were billed for to send them in to get them reimbursed by the insurance company. It was, it was awful. I hated it. And I didn't do it. And I didn't do it. And I didn't do it. And a year lapsed. And all of a sudden, my insurance company is not going to pay that old claim. I'm going to have to pay thousands of dollars for what the doctor did when my son was born. I remember I called the office and I said, hi, I need to know how much I owe you. And she said, I can't find any paperwork about that. I guess you don't owe us anything. That's mercy. 
And that wasn't from the doctor. He didn't do that on purpose. It wasn't from the clerk. She didn't do that on purpose. I believe that was from God because what I had coming was a huge debt. And what I got was nothing. That's mercy. That's a beautiful thing. That's what happens at the cross. If you look at verse 13, it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, without the cross, you're dead in your sins. And you can't save yourself. You're dead. You can't save yourself. Dead things don't do stuff. Did I say they're dead? And if you're dead, there's no hope. And on top of that, you were legally condemned. You know that because of verse 14. Read verse 14 with me again. Look at the words. Canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Jesus has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So there is a charge of legal indebtedness that stood against every human being. And every human being has run up the bill. We just kept charging things like there was no payday coming, no, no debt coming, no, no bill coming from that. We just kept spending, 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 and we can't pay that off in any way except for one. You do know that you don't have to have Jesus pay for your sins, right? Did you know that? You can pay for them yourself. That's what hell is. It is you or me paying for our own sins. But we don't have to do that. We are saved from having to do that because Jesus saves us from what we deserve, paying for our own sins. He cancels the indebtedness and he nails it to the cross. He saved us from experiencing the pain we deserve and he saves us to something as well. He gives us new life. Look at verse 13. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. Alive. Spiritually alive. So that suddenly you have an interest in things you didn't have an interest in before. Suddenly you're alive and you like that kind of thing that you wouldn't have liked before. It's a transition that takes place. That the things that might have seemed really boring to you suddenly seem exciting to you. Following God, worshiping him. That happens when you look at the cross. You see your salvation. When you look at the cross, you see your salvation and you see your transformation as well. People who look at the cross see that they have been changed. The Bible says that in Titus 3.5, it says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth. And here's the word, the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. He makes us different. One time, uh, a group of people were um, uh, being, uh, some politicians, they were being interviewed uh, in a debate setting. And I'm going to leave this nameless because I try to be apolitical, right? And I try not to lift up or put down any politicians. So you just have to maybe guess who this is. And they were asking him that at the time, the born again thing was kind of a big movement. Chuck Colson had written that book, Born Again. And, And as they were talking, they said, are you born again to these presidential candidates? And can you talk about that a little bit? And one of the candidates said this sentence, I'll never forget it. He said, I don't know who invented that phrase, born again, but I'm a Christian. Anybody see what's wrong with that? Just tell me, who invented the phrase, born again? Jesus, yeah. Jesus invented that phrase, born again. When he invented it, he was saying to Nicodemus, when you go to me, when you come to me, something changes about you as though you're born all over again. You're a whole different person. The old you no longer lives, a new you lives instead. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is packed with meaning concerning this. It says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in a body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when you turn to Christ, something happens at the cross. And Jesus, as Jesus is crucified, put to death, something in you is crucified and put to death. Something has changed. And, and while most people who turn to Jesus sense that change when they come to him, often we struggle believing it over the long haul. Because after we become a Christian, we're like, I don't know, man, I, I wish I could live the way I could, and it's just not happening. And often we fall back into old patterns that we lived in, and old thought patterns, and even old behaviors. We find ourselves struggling spiritually, and we're saying, I just don't know if I believe that this is working for me. But look at the wording of the text on the screen. It says this. It says, the life I live now in the body, I live how? By faith. In who? The Son of God. Who's that? The one who died for me. So as I'm dealing with that issue of transformation and struggling with it along the way, and I look to the cross, I see there's the one who died for me. And although I may be struggling in my walk with him, I can see that he is changing me, he's transforming me, and I trust him. That's what by faith means. I trust him to do that until he is done in the day of Christ Jesus. And so your transformation is coming about as you're trusting him. And you see that when you look to the cross. Here's the third thing you see when you look to the cross. You see your identity. <laughs> you see your identity. Now, identity is kind of a deal with us as human beings. It probably always has been. But it's real easy to point it out these days. You can see how we want to be identified one way or the other. Years ago, do you remember Dr. Laura? Call 1-800-DR-LAURA and I will solve all your problems. At the end of every segment of her show, she would say, I'm my kid's mom, right? That's a statement of identity. Dr. Laura was saying it, I think, because she wanted to role model that to people who maybe don't see parenting as an important thing. And she's saying, if you are a parent, one of the most important things you need to identify yourself is as a parent. And you need to behave as a parent. You gotta identify yourself that way and live as a parent. You can't just live casually like, yeah, I'm a parent, but I'm a lot of other more important things. And so she says, I'm my kid's mom. It was a good idea. But it was her identity, too. I'm my kid's mom. And I often wonder how Dr. Laura handled the empty nest when it came along. Wow, you know? Because often my kid's mom happens to be a helicopter parent, and those girls are really ugly at college. Just want to say, they're there. <laughs> they're really ugly at college, right? But, but it, I just say that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to say being a mom or being a dad is my identity. I'm just saying that's evidence that we all want to have something that identifies us. Let me give you another example. Um, there's a guy I know, he's a pastor, and every time I see him, he's wearing Pittsburgh Penguins stuff. At Mahaffey Camp, he has a different, and it's not even hockey season during Mahaffey Camp. He has a different Penguins hat every day of camp, and a different Penguins shirt, thankfully, every day of camp, you know? And, he, and he's that guy. What's he doing? He is saying, this is my identity. Penguins fan. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that just shows us that all of us look to have some kind of way that we can be identified in a world. Now, now for some of us, this identity thing is deeply damaged. For, for some of us, we might see ourselves as losers. I had a roommate in my apartment in college, 
And, and I would sometimes hear him in the other room, and you know how you kind of talk to yourself, and there was nothing wrong with him as far as he wasn't that crazy guy, like, you know? He was a pretty normal guy. He's successful in business now. But in college, I can remember him. I heard more than once, I could hear him talking to himself in the other room, and I would hear this phrase, I am such a loser. Wow. That's a bad identity. That's an identity he needs to get rid of. That's an identity that's probably coming from the enemy. Some of our identities are just really bad things. There are people who see themselves as doormats, and I'm going to be real careful about the language I use here, but a person who sees themselves as a doormat is a person who will find him or herself being used by other people. See how careful I'm being with what I'm saying? Wow. You don't want to have that as your identity. That's a bad identity. I have another friend who is, his identity is the black sheep of the family. And he'll say every now and then, I'm the black sheep of the family. I'm the only one that drinks and I'm the only one that doesn't go to church and I'm the only one that didn't go to college and I'm I'm the black sheep of my family. And he kind of wears that as a badge and it has led him down a path of a lot of grief that he wouldn't have needed to go down if that was not his identity. You see how this issue of your identity is really an important issue. I mean, it's okay if you got a different penguin's hat for every day of the week. That's not the problem with identity I'm talking about. But these latter ones I've spoken of, they are not inconsequential. They are downright destruction. But when you look at the cross, you see a different identity. When you look at the cross, now hear this. I'm going to put these words on the screen. Hear them. You should see that you have value to God himself. You should see that your worth is not tied to your intellect, your sexuality, your beauty, your grades, or even your sports team. When you look at the cross, you should see that you are free from condemnation. When you look at the cross, you should see that you have become a runner in a race and you can run that well. That is your identity, not those other things. Those are things that you see when you look at the cross. Now, someone might be sitting there and a context like this, and say, yeah, okay, but what if I don't see those things? I mean, when I look at the cross, Pastor Steve, I'm not sure that I see those things. Why? Let me suggest a couple reasons, okay? And this might seem heavy, but it's something you need to address personally. If you do not see things like this when you look at the cross, then maybe it's because you have never been to the cross. I don't say that in a smart-alecky way. Well, if you don't see these things at the cross, maybe it's because you've never been to the cross. I don't do that. I'm saying this. Maybe the reason you don't see those things at the cross is because you've never really encountered the cross of Jesus. And I'm not trying to encourage you to doubt your faith. I'm definitely, though, trying to get you to examine your faith and to think it through. One of the greatest dangers for people like me and you is that we might feel like Christianity is something we kind of slide into. You know, we're Christians because our parents were Christians. We're Christians because we kind of like hanging out with Christians. We're we're Christians because we grew up in a Christian community and attended church for a number of years now. I remember a couple I knew in in a ministry I was pastoring. I'm going to call them Rob and Lauren. That is not their real name. Rob and Lauren, they attended my church, and Lauren had grown up in church, but one evening she came in early to see me and sat in my office and said words like these, I don't think I've ever made a real decision for Christ. I think I just grew up in church and I kind of slipped into the kingdom. 
That evening, in my office, she went to the cross. She sat across the desk from me and she cried. And she said words like these, Jesus, I know I have sinned. And I know that you died for me. I am so sorry that my sin put you on that cross. Please forgive me for my sins. Not because I'm a good guy and girl, not because I'm, I'm anything, but because Jesus paid for my sins. God, I'm asking you to take that payment and make it count for me. I'm turning away from my sins. With all I am, I'm turning my heart to you. And her life was changed. Before that, even though she grew up in church, she'd never been to the cross. When she went to the cross, everything changed. Her husband, Rob, didn't understand that. Rob uh, was the kind of guy who said, whatever Lauren is happy with, I'm happy with. You know, maybe he had that thing a buddy of mine likes to say, happy wife, happy life, you know? (laughs) And if she wants to go to church, I'll go to church. And Rob kind of liked going to church. He liked some of her friends. As couples, they got together. They had sledding parties together. even liked the music at church. But Rob had never been to the cross, and Lauren knew it. And her greatest fear was that Rob would do what she had done, just slip into Christianity without ever going to the cross. And she knew that would be the kiss of death for eternity if that happens. I think churches are full of Laurens and Robs. Laurens who've grown up in church but never really faced their sin and guilt, so they never went to the cross. And Robs, who kind of like church, they like the church environment, they like their buddies, but they've never turned to Jesus personally, so they never went to the cross. And those people don't see their need for salvation when they look at the cross. They don't see their salvation when they look at the cross because they didn't need it. They just see a symbol, an uncertainty. If you can't see your salvation when you look at the cross, maybe you've never been to the cross. You should go there. Let me make another suggestion. In this question of, well, what if I don't see these things at the cross, then maybe you don't see these things at the cross because you bought a lie about the cross. This is kind of crazy. I don't know what it is, but all my young life as a pastor, I did not like A.W. Tozer. Oh, wow. I was kind of expecting a lightning bolt when I said that sentence, right? Because Tozer is like the guy, especially in alliance circles. I really didn't like him. And just recently, I've been reading his material. I'm like, Wow, this guy is so dead on. So dead on. He wrote a book and he called it, I call it heresy. (laughs) Maybe that's why I didn't like him. (laughs) Just the title kind of turns off a younger mind, doesn't it? He's got a good point in it. I want to read you something from the opening paragraph. Tozer says this, I must be frank in my feeling that a notable heresy has come into being through our evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior, and we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. (laughs) That really makes no sense at all if you think about it. I mean, think about it for just a moment. If coming to God for salvation means saying, God, I'm sorry I sinned, but I believe Jesus died for me, Please forgive me for those sins, even though I have no interest in learning how to turn away from them. In fact, I really like sinning, and I can plan to really continue doing it for a good long time. But would you please forgive me for them anyway? It doesn't make a lot of sense in our head, but I think it happens. I think it happens. People pray to ask God to forgive them without regard 
and how their behavior should change as a result. Try that with your wife, gentlemen. <laughs> Try it with your husband. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He is not saying that you have to do good things in order to earn your way to heaven. He is saying that when you understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, that's going to change the way you live, and transformation is something that will follow as a result of that. The person who thinks they are a Christian because of some prayer they said without any sense of guilt or remorse or repentance, that person will struggle when they look at the cross to see any transformation, and even when they look at themselves. If you don't see your transformation when you look at the cross, maybe you bought a lie about the cross. Let me give you one more suggestion. Third suggestion is this. Maybe you don't see these things at the cross because you haven't reframed your identity. Maybe you still see yourself as a lowly sinner who will never change. And there might even be something in your mind that feels kind of proud of the humility you have to say such a thing. Like, yeah, I'm saved by the grace of God and I'm, I'm just a sinner who just, I just keep on sinning just about the same as I did before I knew Jesus, but I'm saved by his grace. And indeed, the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a chief of sinners, but the Apostle Paul didn't see himself as someone who was not changing. In fact, he says in Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. What's he wanting to take hold of? His identity. His identity is someone who is born again. His identity is someone who is transformed. His identity is someone who is different. Not a loser, not a doormat, not a black sheep, but someone who is made in the image of God and redeemed by the, the blood of Christ and transformed by the Spirit of God. That's who I am, and that's what Paul is taking hold of. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In other words, I am working to live as a person who's different than I was before I met Christ. I'm working to live out my identity. If you don't see yourself as a new person when you look at the cross, maybe you're not engaging your new identity. So how do I do that, Pastor C? I mean, how do I look to the cross? How do I make this happen in my life? First, receive and affirm your salvation. I say receive because if you realize, like Lauren did, that you just kind of slid into the kingdom and never really did business at the cross of Christ, then you need to do that. And that's receiving your salvation. I say affirm because it's something you need to do it's something you need to look to again and again. You don't need to do it again and again, but you need to look to again and again. Receive your salvation. If you have never personally looked to Jesus for your salvation, when should you? When will you? Now's the time. Talk to him. God, I realize I've never really been to the cross. I have been religious. I've been faithful. I've cried, Lord, Lord, but I've never been to the cross and I see my sin in a way that I should have seen it long ago. But I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing and a lot of times I want to and I don't even care that it bothers you. I'm sorry for that. And I have no way to correct that except to ask you to forgive me and I can't even ask for your forgiveness unless you will count Christ's death on my account. 
that he paid for my sin. I trust you to do that, God. Forgive me. With all that I am, I turn my heart toward you. That's what the cross is for. You understand? That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be born again. And when you have received your salvation, then affirm it again and again, because there is an enemy that will say, "Uh uh-uh, that didn't count. There is an enemy that will tell you that it didn't work for you. There is an enemy that will lie to you and tell you nothing has changed. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. A lie from the pit of hell. Reaffirm it over and over again that the way you are saved is by the gracious gift of Jesus' death on your behalf. And that you really had next to nothing to do with it. All you did is said yes. He did it all. That shouldn't make you feel bad about yourself that you didn't have anything to do with it. It should make you feel glad. Wow, I am loved that deeply that he would do it all. That's great. I love that God who did it all. That is how you look to the cross. It begins by receiving your salvation from him as a gift and affirming that gift over and over again. Second, to look to the cross, expect and pursue your transformation. Jesus says something in the Beatitudes, that's toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And in verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. So if you have a hunger for transformation, you desire to be changed, Jesus said, that's gonna happen. And the enemy will say, no, it's not, that'll never happen. But I gotta tell you, if Jesus says one thing and the enemy of your soul says another, it's a no-brainer on who you should trust. Jesus says it. So first, expect it, that God wants to change your heart, that God wants to help you love what is good and hate what is evil. And expect that change to take root in your life, that change of heart. Second, hunger for it. Pursue it, desire it. Do not allow anything to quench what the Spirit of God is placing in your heart that desires holiness. Now, be sure you understand this. While your your transformation requires a decision of your will, your transformation is not simply a matter of willpower. Did you hear that? It does require you to say, yes, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't require you to say, so I'll do it. I'm going to set up a resolution just like a diet that I'm going to go on and I'm going to lose that weight and I'm going to be more like Jesus. I'm going to do it by my will. It's really simply a matter of you surrendering so that you say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Where do you do that? (laughs) At the cross. At the cross of Christ. And the Bible says that this is fitting, it's appropriate. In fact, it says, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Okay, now that's a lot of words, but but it tells you, if you look in it, how are you transformed? How is your mind renewed? There it is, when you surrender and offer yourself to God, then he does it. It's a matter of surrender. By surrendering yourself to God, you can look to the cross and begin to see your transformation. And third, 
How do I look to the cross? How does this make a difference in my life? Okay, first it says I need to receive and affirm my salvation. Second, it says I need to pursue, expect and pursue a transformation in my life. Not that I'm going to be perfect, but I will be changed. Not that I've laid a hold of it, but I will press on till the day I die to lay a hold of that. And third, third, realize and embrace your new identity, your identification. Understand that since you went to the cross, you are not the same person. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And to live that new life, you have to realize it's there for you to live. So go ahead and embrace it. Embrace the new identity that God has given you. You're one who's made in the image of God. Good. Live like it. You are one who has, since you've turned to Jesus, been rescued from sin and death. Good. Live like it. You are one who, having, to, having been to the cross, has received the Spirit of God. Good. Live like it. You can look to the cross, see who you really are, and begin to live that identity. So a number of years ago, a couple pastors were staying at the Hyatt Hotel at General Council of the Christian Missionary Alliance. This is a number of years ago. General Council, a number of years ago, you wore a suit to all the business sessions. So here it was. It was late in May. It was a hot, hot week. And uh, they were staying about nine blocks from the conference center. Long walk in the heat of the city in, in a suit, in dress shoes to get there. It was not a pleasant thing. At the end of the week, these two pastors bumped into some other pastors who were staying at the Hyatt and said, this is a great hotel, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Have you looked at, down at the pool? Have you, yeah, oh, it's just a great place. This is a good place. I hate the walking, though. Don't you hate the walking? And the other pastors said to them, wait, what? You didn't look at the brochure that was in your room. No. What brochure in your room? The brochure about transportation. Did you look at it? No. It said that as a resident of the Hyatt, your passage was paid on a climate-controlled bus that went on the top of the hour every hour back and forth to the convention center. Climate-controlled means air-conditioned, by the way. Back and forth every hour on the hour. Because you are part of the Hyatt family, you have this privilege but me and Jeff had never looked at that brochure. (laughs) And so we walked and walked. By the time we saw it, it was too late. That's the way it is with the cross, you understand. (laughs) Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all. Those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit. They receive the gift of eternal life. Their identity has changed. They become children of God. God has provided them passage. It is there for you. But you need to look to the cross. You need to turn your heart toward Christ. What do you see when you look there? (laughs) What do you see when you look at the cross? If you receive and affirm your salvation, you see your salvation. And if you expect and pursue your transformation, you see your transformation. And if you realize and embrace your identification, you see your new identity. I want to pray that you could do that. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. Now listen, a few minutes ago in my sermon, I said, here's what you tell God. I even closed my eyes and did the prayer. God, I know that I messed up. God, I know that I I need to go to the cross. I need Jesus. I did that. And maybe you did that with me in my sermon. That was the hope of my heart. If you didn't, Do it with me now, just in the quietness of your thoughts. I'm going to pray that same kind of a prayer. 
And just in that, in that silence of your heart, you can speak to God concerning that. So let's do that, okay? Father in heaven, I pray for each one that is here that they would have been to the cross. We do not want to slip into the kingdom because we realize that's impossible. And so, laying our hearts before you, we would say these words. Father, I know that I've sinned. I know I fall short of the glory of God. I know that I even love sin sometimes. I know that's displeasing to you. And I am absolutely helpless to deal with it in my own strength. But I trust that you demonstrated your own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God, I would ask you to forgive my sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I don't take that as an easy ticket out. It is, but that's not the way I'm taking it. I take that as a great, great gift of love bestowed on me. And when I sense that love that you have given me, it turns my heart inside out. It transforms my thinking so that the sin that I loved, I no longer love. And the things that I might have felt were boring, I now think might be really great to follow you and to learn about you and to read your word and to grow in my faith. And so Jesus, I turn from that which is evil and I would pursue righteousness. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. May I be filled. I take this new identity that you have given me. I live this life that I am your child. That you have made me someone different. And I don't have to be a loser. I don't have to be a doormat. I don't have to be a black sheep. I don't have to be anything except your child. And I can walk after you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when I forget this stuff, turn my neck so my face looks again at the cross of Christ. And I will reaffirm my salvation. I will rediscover my transformation. And I will re-engage my identification. In Christ's name, amen.